Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. I'd also like to note that today marks the second anniversary of our shows. We've done this will be our 24th episode over the past two years, and I wanted to thank all of you who dial in and listen and have sent us uh, comments, questions, and so forth uh, over the past two years. We appreciate your interest in the show and the program and look forward to continuing to serve you into the future. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering a number of broad topics along with our lightning round and our financial literacy section. Uh, we do have a few questions that have come in by email, which we'll be uh, touching on as they become relevant. Uh, again, if in the future you'd like to place a question, please email us at info at worldbusiness.org. Again, info at worldbusiness.org. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas that you can use in today's economy. This morning, we're going to be focusing on a broad question, which is what are the significance of the recent fluctuations in the stock market? What should we infer from the fact that the Dow surged 4.2% last week after central banks acted to make additional funds available to lenders? Does the surge suggest the biggest problems in the global financial system are behind us? As a last question, I should mention that the Dow has been down about 150 points today. Um, We're also going to be doing in our lightning round a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate, with our focus today being on the fundamental concept we call stocks. And during the financial literacy literacy section of the call, uh, Ronaldo and I will be talking about the term stock and what does it actually mean to own a stock. Ronaldo, as you know, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present our listeners with concrete, actionable ideas that not only are good for them, but also reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society to business. I'm sorry, business society. Can you expand upon this for our audience and explain exactly what this means in context for today? Yeah, I think, uh, thank you, Howard, for, uh, and it is kind of neat to be able to say we've been doing this for two years. Uh, thank you for being on the show with us for two years and, and doing this for the Academy, Howard. I greatly appreciate it. And, uh, it's been my pleasure and a lot of fun. Yeah, it has been fun, and we've certainly covered a lot of ground. Um, I, I think the thing we should start with today is, uh, I'm glad you noted that the Dow is down over 150 points today. In fact, uh, the uh, as I sit here today, it's down 162 right now. Um and, and, and what I want people to know or just to, to focus on for a minute, because one of the topics we outlined at the very beginning of the show here is the volatility of the stock market. And we specifically said that, that 400 and some point rise that we just went through last week, uh, does that indicate that good times, you know, happy times are here again, so to speak, or is it signaling something else? And, and, and um, good news, bad news. Uh, the good news is that people are grasping at anything to try and find a reason to get liquidity, meaning the excess cash they're holding, back to work in the marketplace or somewhere. And hopefully, towards the end of this hour, we'll talk a little bit about that. The second thing, though the bad news is, that volatility that you see, that upward, dramatic upward rise, and then it rises, it plummets, it rises, it plummets. When you look at that uh, volatility, it really is a bad thing. 
what it's saying is that the the market doesn't know what to do because, frankly, we as a conscious human population on the planet Earth don't know what to do. Here's what I mean. So the market's up 450 points, and it goes down by 300 points, and it goes back up. Do you know when that happened before? When's the most recent time that happened? Do you know, Howard? In terms of up and down, well, I, other than happening since August. Wild, yeah, wild fluctuations like this. Before 2011, when was the last time that happened? Since August? You know, it happened in August, wasn't it? Even in 2008, I'd be hard-pressed to say it really didn't happen then. It was all down. Yeah, it did. If you look at uh, August, September, and October, we had four or five wild fluctuating swings before the crash hit. And, and those fluctuations were indicative of a system that had been destabilized. And it could have gone either way. What it did is it went into the Great Recession as liquidity locked up and, and, and people realized, oh, my God, Lehman Brothers collapsed. How do the banks get access to capital? They'll stop blending the squeezes on. The, first, the system froze up, and the rest, as we know, is history. That's exactly the condition we have today. Now, I want to give some more good news for a moment. Going into the last three or four months, we've had several different wild cards that could have come out in a terrible way, including the situation in the U.S. On this program three or four months ago, we said it looks like us we're going to head to that we're going to hit or are going to, we're in a stagnant economy, maybe even double dip. And it appears that for the moment, if Europe doesn't come completely unglued and collapse the international financial system, which it could, the bad news coming, then the U.S. at least is sustaining a small but continuing growth curve. And certainly new jobs being added in the private sector in the U.S. now 20 months in a row are significant. So there's a lot of good news happening. And hopefully we'll talk in this show also, Howard, make sure we do by the end, on the significance of Obama's proposal for the $1,000, for extending the payroll tax deduction of $1,000 for every, what, 160 million people will be benefited. So there's, there's some stimulative things that the president's starting to do without Congress's support. There are other things the president's doing that requires congressional support, like payroll tax uh, extension. And I think what we ought to look at now is, with the wild card of the U.S. starting to stabilize, and of course, we're going to be going into an election cycle, which also is both good and bad. But let's assume that the U.S. is not the wild card it was three months ago, and I think that's true. The U.S. is stabilizing and growing, and I think the worst contractions in the public sector jobs, which is what's been dragging the economy down the last year and a half, those worst contractions, I think, are over. So I think you're going to see some uh, continued moderate growth, not too dramatic, not too exciting, but you're going to see continued moderate growth in the U.S., and if the stock market thought that were true, for sure, then you wouldn't see wild fluctuations and swings. You'd see an upward march of, I would say, at least 10% to 15%. Uh, by the way, it, just to put this all in context, despite all these rapid fluctuations that have been occurring, uh, if you look at the where the S&P, the Standard Poor 500s, which is probably the broader market gauge, where that is today as opposed to where it was at the beginning of the year, it's virtually flat. It's actually a tiny, tiny bit down. So, you know, we have this anomaly, which I, I, I was noting that Bill Nichols, the senior managing director at Cantor Fitzgerald, said, quote, we had the worst Thanksgiving week since the 30s, and then turn, you turn around, you have an 8% rally in three days. Okay? Everything is great in terms of a nice move, but you look year to date, the Dow is up 3%, and the S&P is still down, and the U.S. is outperforming other markets. So we're talking about a U.S. economy 
that if, if we I, believe... I might, I might throw in there, Ronaldo, as well, that when you look at other factors in this, that American corporations earn something like 40% of their profits from overseas. The overseas markets are still way down um, globally compared to the domestic market. Well, they're down, who, in, they're down in market shares. Are they down in economic activity? Not really. So the, the global recession is not setting. The only country of significance that's already in recession probably is UK. Germany is either about to go in or is in now. Italy clearly is in it. Uh, Spain, Portugal, Ireland, those people are in it. So, but you take all that together and you offset it with China, which is still booming along at about 7 8% at least, maybe 9 depending on how you read their numbers. you got uh, India still booming along at 5 6%, almost 4 5%. And you got the U.S. growing at a little over 2%. So the global economy is still on a net, net, net basis growing. And by the way, there's some really strong bright lights on Southeast Asia, as you know, like Singapore and what's been going on in Korea and, uh, South Korea and, and, and Taiwan. But but what I'm and, and look at Latin America, with the exception of what's happening now, uh, Brazil's economy has finally uh, the giant engine of the South. Uh, the Brazilian economy is now going into uh, neutral because of the cutbacks in, in, in global consumption. Well, where we are right today, I think, Howard, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. On this, I think where we are is everything's riding on Europe, meaning that the U.S is going to be able, and this is why I mean there's no longer the big wild card they were. I think the president's finally figured out he's a wartime president. He's finally acting like that. And he's finally executing executive orders that are starting to make a difference. And I believe if the, if the payroll tax extension occurs, I might as well just cover that now, which it should. I mean, the idea that 160 million Americans will pay an extra $1,000 in taxes next year when the economy is so, bad, is so weakened is insane. There is no reason on earth why that shouldn't go through, and, and, other, and to raise other the than ta- politics. Other than politics, would you? And the politics are the politics of. It'd be one thing if it was because you say you think what's good for the economy is something, and I think it's different. That's not what's going on here. It's it's stop Obama from having a, a successful economy, crater the economy at all costs. Exactly. So that they can exactly. take the White House and the Senate. That's what it's about. It's it's the most craven sort of politics. It's discouraging. It's disgusting. But it's what we're dealing with. So, I, but I, my point is, I think the president's got that under control to the point where he can keep the economy growing, even if it's just a modest two, two and a half, three percent. In fact, three would be great, but two, two and a half would be great. And I think he can achieve that, although he is going to need that payroll tax extension. And I think he's going to get it, by the way. Now, whether he gets it with the the provision embedded in it, which I believe he will, that the top one tenth of one percent would have to pay a one percent tax. We're talking one percent. After their first million dollars, so the first million they get to make doesn't count. Just after one million dollars is made, on the next million and every million after that, you pay one percent tax, which would still leave that taxpayer at over two percent below what they were paying under the under the Clinton years. So, so lower than ever. If that goes through, which I think it does, and the Bush tax cuts are not renewed, so that automatically you get a tax increase. Which I don't like that happening because I think it's been it's a it's a ham-fisted solution, but I think it will achieve the result. Then, in those two conditions, because the super committee failed, it appears to me that it's safe to project at this time that the U.S. will be a positive growth for all of 2012, but for Europe. Now let's focus on Ronaldo. Before you go forward, let me backtrack a second just so we can clarify the Bush tax cuts. If I am correct in my understanding. They will not expire until a year from now, at the end of 2012. 
and would have to unless they're changed or voted on by Congress before right. the end of next year. Now the other tax that you but, mentioned, whoa, 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 whoa. Say there. So what that was the battle that started what a month ago. Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is that the game of chicken, if you will, that the Bush tax cuts represent is if if if, if, if Obama gets the payroll tax through this year, which last year remember they linked them together for the extension Correct. for one year? Mm-hmm. This year they're, they've been decoupled. So if Obama gets the payroll tax through, which I think he will, now I'm, it's, it's, it's a question in my mind what the funding side of that's going to be, but I think that the Republicans are going to blink on that one because it affects 160 million people directly. Now, if that's the case, by the way, and if they don't blink on it, oh my God, will they pay at the ballot box because that will become the number one issue in the campaign for all of 2012. Now, if they de- if it stays well, let me just ask a question for clarification purposes. That was what I was trying to go towards. This one percent millionaire tax that's been bandied about is that part of this proposal for the payroll tax? Is that buried in that legislation? Yes. Or is yes. that a separate issue? There's a funding mechanism. That's one of several that have been proposed to pay for the extension of the one thousand dollar tax benefit to 160 million Americans. So 160 million Americans benefit for $1,000 each, which is a lot of money to 160 million Americans. And the only people who have to pay are people who earn more than a million dollars. Is one of the proposals. Now, notice it's not if you have a million dollars. We're not talking about if you have a million in assets. What he's talking about is if you earn more than a million dollars in income per year, then you will pay a 1% tax on what you earn in excess of $1 million. And even that is being opposed by Republicans, and I think that's politically unsustainable for them. I don't think they can make that stick. But let me go back to the point about the 2012 that you correctly brought up. What I'm saying is if you can keep the payroll tax and the Bush tax cuts decoupled, okay, that means at some point during the year, 2012, there will be a deal on the Bush tax cuts, meaning that the Republicans will realize that even uh, Norquist, even Norquist, who is the guy with the anti-tax Republican guy, who's got everybody signed that pledge, even Grover Norquist would agree that it would be better to keep taxes from rising as much as they will rise if the Bush tax cuts are let to expire. And so there will be a force, a showdown of a deal sometime before the election. And that will tend to improve the economy in 2012. The inevitability that that deal will be made will improve the economy in 2012. And the fact that if it isn't made will improve the economy in 2012. All of those factors point in an improved American economy. So my point was, decoupling payroll tax from the 2012 Bush tax cuts automatically uh, dying, which is what they've done now, finally. If you can get the payroll tax through, I'm projecting with some confidence that you'll see 2.5% or more real growth in the U.S. economy in 2012, and that's in an election year. With, with, and that's with the same, almost the same amount of Republican obstructionism, a little bit less because I think the president has the upper hand now on the payroll tax, and therefore he'll be in better negotiating position on the Bush tax cuts. And you will see the economy will grow faster in 2012 than it did in 2011, which helps the president, of course, and helps his reelection chances, should reflect itself in lower unemployment. We haven't touched on that. We could. Now, what's the big wild card? Because we started this conversation with the volatility of the stock market. Up 490 points, down 230 points, up 400, up 300, down 170. I mean, this swinging that's going on that that is absolutely indicative of a destabilized situation, the wild card is Europe, and what's the wild card? Everybody needs to understand it's not something happening over there. It's happening to us. And what's happening is this. And by the way, a major announcement came out this morning from the European Bank, ECB. The 
the, the, the wild card, Howard, is that the Europeans won't pull it off. I'm saying, and I'm going to be publishing an article in the next couple of weeks on this, Angela Merkel is playing chicken. And I think she's a very smart woman, and I hope she wins. Her calculated best. Her well, calculated what is, what, best. What, I mean, she always strikes me as someone who's walking a tightrope. Yes, she is. Between the powers of the various European independent banks, the European Central Bank, and the electorate in Germany, um, as well as the actual economy of Europe collectively combined, and that this is a very challenging path. But so what, can you clarify for our listeners what the the factors are that are actually buffeting her? Okay, well, first of all, um, you got to start with who Angela Merkel is as the Chancellor of Germany. Uh, Angela Merkel was a physics professor, Howard, not an economist, a physics professor in East Germany. Growing up as a teenager at the time when everybody was discussing German reunification, East and West Germany. And at that time, everybody who was smart in economics said, it's a stupid deal for the West Germans. It's way too expensive. It'll take them 30 to 50 years to pay the bills. The two countries are so different, East Germany and West Germany. One is poorer than than, than the bankrupt company, countries of Europe today. I mean, the so-called southern tier, which is Greece, southern part of Italy, are are closer in living standards by far to West Germany than East Germany was to West Germany when they were reunified. Meaning the gap of social systems, the gap of, of, of wealth, the gap in infrastructure, the gap in institutions between East and West Germany was larger than it is between the rich company trees of Europe today and the poor ones. So this enormous gap, and people said it was a bad idea for the West Germans, but from an East German's point of view, an Angela Merkel, who grew up knowing people were getting shot climbing over the Berlin Wall trying to escape. To her, it looked like the smartest deal of the century. And by the way, it turns out it was. It turns out that a reunified Germany was a great thing for Europe and a great thing for Germany. So she's seen this argument play out before about you can't bail out a six-sister country. But that six-sister was her country called East Germany. And she not only survived through that period, she became the chancellor of the unified Germany. Now, that's the mindset, that's the mentality, that's the consciousness behind Angela Merkel's calculations. you got a very smart woman who came up politically through the East German side, eventually ended up being, no one would have guessed what would have been Chancellor of Germany, is, and is very, very bright. What is it she said from the day she first was asked a question about this whole European mess? And she said, we started out in Europe more than three decades ago with the goal of political unification, more political unity. We've gotten there on trade barriers. That's the 27-member European Union, we, which came out of the EC. We've gotten there with a monetary system, a common currency for 17 countries, the euro. But now we have to go to the next step, which is more political unification, meaning we have to be able to restrain the fiscal policies of sovereign states in the, in, in the interest of a greater, if you will, federalized Europe. Now, the, the Europeans are very afraid of this because they're saying, oh, my God, the Germans will dominate it, da, 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 whatever they – forget the oh, my God. So the problem is Germany has, in her mind, no alternative. And because of the way this has now played itself out, I think that's true. In other words, what Germany's got to do, and I think France is already on board, I personally believe that Italy's on board, and I believe that what they're going to do is set a new kind of relationship together – so that if you're part of this, any group of European countries that agrees to have a certain amount of additional political unity, meaning common fiscal discipline, 
then you'll get to float a new kind of euro bond, which will guarantee you won't go broke. In the absence of something like that, Howard, I believe Europe could hit the wall. And when Europe hits the wall, the exposure by one analyst in the U.S. alone, there's a $4 trillion exposure for the U.S. alone. By the way, the entire global economic system, you think Lehman Brothers froze it up. Where do you see what happens if you've got countries like France and Italy going into default? And, and one last stat, statistic that's very key. A little over a week ago, Germany went to the market. Germany, the strongest country in the Western industrial democracies, it went to market and it could not sell 100% of its bonds, German bonds. It only sold 60% of them. It had to take 40% back because they couldn't be sold at a favorable price. So when Germany can't sell 100% of its bonds, and the chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, says, damn the torpedoes, I recognize the risk, we're going to get more political unity, or this fiscal crisis is not going to get solved, so there we have to do it. Angela is going to push for the final conclusion. And what's destabilizing the stock market, the volatility we discussed at the beginning of the show, is a direct result of the fact that nobody, yours truly included, can, can calculate successfully whether she's going to pull it off or not. If she fails, we are looking at something in the way of a financial meltdown in the, in the, in the global monetary system in excess, meaning much bigger than what happened in 2008. And we don't have anywhere near the tools to restore confidence after that can, that we have can today. We, can we go back a few, again a few steps and say, okay, and again, I've seen a lot of articles flashing across the, the computer screen the past few days about this desire to bring more unity in terms of uh, fiscal policy, fiscal restraint across uh, national boundaries, that they want an agreement. Can you detail some of these a little bit more specifically? Like, for example, what's the next step? What are, there's a meeting going on this week. What are they Moral. trying to accomplish step by step? Okay. So, that, so again, everybody can understand what's going on and follow these uh, situations and then begin to say, okay, if this happens, this is good. This doesn't happen, this is bad, and so forth. I think we we need to sort of okay. you know, simplify this a little let, bit for people. I think so that's a good idea. Okay, first of all, let me give people a, a metaphor, if you will, an analogy. The metaphor is any time you try to run an economy, whether it's an economy of a single country, the economy of a particular state like California, the economy of a group like Europe, you have two, basically, the, the two blades of a scissors are called tines, the two tines of a scissors. So these two different blades. And when you have two blades on a scissors and you squeeze those blades together, they cut paper very efficiently, as you know. If you think of it, one of those blades is called monetary policy. So in the case of the European Union, it's the euro. The other tine, or the other blade of the scissors, is called fiscal policy. What the whole world has come to realize, and there's no question, everybody agrees on this, is that without some way to coordinate the fiscal policy of Europe with the monetary policy of Europe, you cannot cut paper, meaning you can't keep the economy going. So let's go okay. back a step again and explain what monetary is versus fiscal. Okay, so it's monetary is the UCB. It's what the Fed does in America. It's printing money. It's the circulation of money. It's the control and flows of money. That's monetary. So that's a short term. Uh, well, it's, 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 a for, no, it's, it's not short or long because it goes over a long period of time. It's monetary is the, is the use of the money supply and the, and, the, and the way you manipulate the use of the money supply to create a particular result. 
So in the United States, we have practically zero interest because the Fed has been printing money, so there'll be more money in circulation to try and support the economy. Okay, right. that's and monetary did the European policy. bank just lower their rate too as well. Well, they did, did that, but the, what they did this morning, which is even more significant, is they've agreed that they'll take certain kinds of quote collateral close quote in order to be able to lend money to European banks because what's happening is that European banks who are holding sovereign debt from places like Greece and Italy and France and other places, cannot get that debt purchased. So they're out of money. The European banks are literally out of money. So the ECB is trying to supply money by saying, oh, it's okay, even though you can't sell those Greek bonds to anybody, we'll pretend like they're an asset that we can lend you money from ECB. Now the problem is the ECB, which is a monetary situation, can only do so much. You can't, in other words, you can't replace both blades of the scissors and only have monetary policy, and that's what Angela's saying. So the fiscal blade, the other blade, is what you do with the way you spend money. How do you, what kind of, how do you collect money and spend money in your society? How do you tax people? How do you, and where does that tax money go, and how do you spend that money? And how does it either accumulate in society or get wasted? Okay? So a fiscal policy in the United States... I believe we're spending about, what, $2 billion a day on our military, not including the wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, which together are going to cost us $3 trillion when the smoke clears, according to Joseph Stiglitz. So at $2 billion a day, we're pouring money into a giant hole for which we're getting almost no economic benefit. You look around the countries of Iraq and Afghanistan, and you don't see a whole lot of buildings we built. You don't see a whole lot of new schools. You don't see a whole lot of airports and things that we built from nothing like a modern, gleaming country, you see a big hole where you were, where, where did the $2 billion go a day? Actually, that's in military conventional spending. In the Iraq-Iran thing, Iraq-Afghanistan situation, we've spent, it will have been $3 trillion and you can't find, it's hard to find where the money went. And a lot of it was stolen, but even the stuff that wasn't stolen was to build things that got blown up. So you're talking about bad fiscal policy when you spend $2 billion a day on military, plus a war in Afghanistan, plus a war in Iraq. And you keep pouring all that money into military, and, you, and, and what you have is bad roads in America with potholes. And all the teachers are getting fired, so our kids are getting dumber, and our school systems are falling apart, and our, our medical bills are through the roof, and our, our, our elderly can't afford to retire. There's no good long-term care, and I could go on and on and on. We have a country that's basically and badly in need of repair. Now, that's fiscal policy, how we tax people. When we started talking earlier about should the rich, should, should people who make over $1 million a year in income, should they pay an extra 1% tax on every million over the first million? Well, if you object to that, you're objecting to fiscal policy. I'd also say you're objecting to any, that's, it's irrational to object to that, particularly when we have the lowest tax rates in, in, in our history as a nation, and much lower than the rates that Clinton had that he used to balance the budget and, get, and, 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 and eliminate the deficit. So, where we are today is Europe is looking at these two blades of the scissors, fiscal monetary policy, and Angela Merkel saying we can't get any further with the euro till we fix fiscal policy. And the markets all agree with her, the capital markets. They've said, you know what? The ECB can change its definition of what's valuable, valid collateral, but that only is a Band-Aid. And to give you some idea how bad this is, that's not even a tourniquet. It's a Band-Aid. Right now... Europe's banks are hemorrhaging, in a sense, capital. And they're looking at the fact they have an enormous amount of refinancing to do coming up in 2012. And they can't get access to the capital markets. So 
mutual funds in America, financial institutions in America, um, uh, insurance companies, pension funds are not going to buy European bank debt because they know the Europeans have all this water on their balance sheet called sovereign debt of nations that are upside down. So somebody's got to come to the party and bail out Europe. And what well, let me ask you a question again. And this is, again, somewhat of a devil's advocate question. Um, but since 2008, the the Federal Reserve has opened up what they call their window for lending to a lot of the large banks. Now, this story was actually out in 2008. It was not a secret. The number of dollars they lent out at virtually no interest to the large banks, uh, that just came out recently. Um, and that has, in a sense, provided, although not necessarily efficiently, and it really hasn't trickled down, but it has provided some degree of stability to the economy. Um, well, keep it, from, keep it from going. And again, I use that very loosely. Now, does the European Central Bank have that ability or a similar ability to provide that liquidity on a temporary basis to keep the European banks, the private banks, afloat um, through this time frame. Well, the, it, what the, what, what is that the, a tool they can use? What, what the new, and don't forget, the, the head of the ECB just changed in the last 30 days. So uh, you now have a, a whole new cast of characters who are, are running ECB, but the policies probably are pretty much the same. And, um, you know, if you look at the Financial Times of London uh, yes, uh, today, December 8th, the lead headline is Germany insists on new treaty for Europe. And the reason is, the ECB does not have the authority to continue printing money indefinitely, first of all. But there's a bigger problem here, Howard. The problem, this is why the capital market, this is why the markets are fluctuating. This is why the wild stock market fluctuations. This is why nobody knows what's really going to happen. Are we looking at financial Armageddon or not? And the reason is, if there isn't a solution, probably going to be, and, and, and that means if Angela Merkel cannot get people to go along with her solution, which is, to make the scissors work again, give us the control jointly as a bunch of nations to control the fiscal blade of the scissors so we can work it in, in harmony, in concert with the monetary blade of the scissors, and then we can cut our debt. <laughs> nice, nice analogy. If you don't have both blades working, the debt will kill you. The, the, you, you it'll suffocate us because, and here's the key one, the amount in question is bigger than anybody can swallow. In other words, Germany at its strongest, if it wanted to write a check to cover everybody's debts in Europe, isn't big enough to do it. Now, when you start to collapse the liquidity of your banking system, as we learned in 2008, you have to come up with strong measures quickly, or the whole thing goes from frozen, which is what happened in 2008, into complete collapse. We had a period of six weeks in the United States, four weeks for sure, where we didn't know whether it was going to go collapse or can we restore it? And through a series of emergency fiscal measures, such as the TARP bill, uh, and then the stimulus bill after that, without that massive immediate response by the U.S. government to the U.S. situation of the liquidity crisis in the world, the global financial system would, in fact, have collapsed. That's not hyperbole. That's not rhetoric. That's just a fact. We're sitting there again. We're sitting in the same place. And we're looking at... How do you keep this thing from collapsing? And what Angela Merkel is saying is, i got to have the power that the U.S. government has, or somebody's got to have that power. Some group of European nations has to have the power to say jointly, we will create fiscal measures, meaning 
ending taxation collection distribution measures, fiscal measures, which can address the underlying reason why our debts are out of control. And as soon as the markets believe we've done that effectively, they'll realize, okay, we've got a lot of debt, but we'll be paying it off. We'll be servicing our debt. We aren't going to go bankrupt. Right now, what the market doesn't know is, is Europe going to go bankrupt? Right. And if Europe goes go bankrupt, it, doesn't, it leaves us very affected. We're not, it's not neutral to us. Right. Let me go back to an earlier question, which is the Europeans are meeting this week. What is, if you know, the expectation for these meetings this week more specifically? What should we be looking for okay. um, as well, these things happen? Yeah, let, me, let me start that answer with going back and answering the way you, you asked it the first time in a slightly different way. You asked, and I like the way you asked it. You said, what are some of the steps we should be paying attention to, right? Exactly. It got us here, and so how do people know what to watch for? Okay. First of all, a lot of really good steps have occurred. Okay, the, the Germans and the French have been working together basically in secret for about six weeks now. I'm fairly confident they have come up with some sort of a deal they can both live with. When this crisis started, everybody said it will take the 27 nations of the European Union to agree unanimously or there's no chance for any solution. Well, we always thought that wasn't true here at the Academy, and, and in fact now everybody has abandoned that. They say, no, that's right. I guess Angela could get this fixed with the French if she could get the 17 nations of the European Union, uh, Monetary Union to agree. I personally believe, and by the way, I'm, there's not a unanimity of this even within the Academy. Uh, Madeleine Austin, the vice president of the Academy, who's a very, very bright person and extremely capable with us for five years, Madeline uh, has a very different view uh, some of the things I'm saying now, so I want you to know that it's not something that's so black and white that we all agree. But my personal belief is that it does not take a treaty of 17 countries. That in fact, that Angela Merkel has a deal with the French, and I believe she's either got a deal or thinks she's going to get a deal with the Italians. What are some of the steps that we saw that makes me believe that? Well, first of all, the pressure that was put on and the way this whole crisis was handled in order to get Berlusconi out. So the Berlusconi, Prime Minister of, of, of Italy, significant because not only did he, he's, he's probably the biggest crook in modern history, he stole his billions from the country, uh, he's a criminal for a whole bunch of different things, and he's always gotten away with it because he had one thing that everybody liked in Italy, it was stability. So in a country that since World War II, since 1945, changed prime ministers like you and I change underwear. I mean, like every nine months there was a new prime minister. Here comes a guy who sits in office for 19 years, and to a lot of people that looked like a great thing. He was bringing stability to Italy. The problem is he was doing it so he could loot the country. And but he did it by controlling all the media, by a lot of other things I won't go into. Now, here's Berlusconi, and they, Merkel knows there's no way you can unify Italy if Berlusconi's in the middle of the mix. Can't, I mean, you unify Europe if, if Berlusconi's running Italy in the mix. So a 19-year sitting prime minister had to go before a deal could get done, which they did get done. And I think it's no secret that the person they put in in place of Berlusconi, in, a, in, the, in the blink of an eye, was Mario Monti, who, a former EC commissioner, okay? a guy who's known for being a pan-European economist. So he's now in there. Mario Draghi, Draghi is now the head of the ECB, another Italian, who looked at the collapse from the Italian point of view as it was occurring and realized how that was not sustainable. So you got two new Italians who took the place of Berlusconi who intimately get the nature of this crisis. All of a sudden, when Berlusconi disappears, Merkel and Sarkozy become much more public about their, all their private meetings. 
And they start talking about bringing Italy in as well. In fact, there was a story about two weeks ago where the three countries, Germany, Italy, and France, all agreed on the necessity for some sort of joint fiscal, uh, uh, some sort of fiscal um, discipline to be uniformly administered. Well, where we have to watch for today is uh, December 9th, tomorrow, there will be some sort of a some sort of an announcement, don't know what, from the meeting that's occurring in Europe, which was scheduled at the last meeting of all the ministers before the year end. And the betting is that they will float a trial balloon with some details. Up until now, they've given no details of how they want this greater fiscal unity to occur. There'll be some trial balloon floated, and from that trial balloon, they'll start to go to work. And I think what they're going to be looking for with that trial balloon are they ha- do they have a shot at getting all 17 members of the European Monetary Union together to agree, or are they going to have to create some smaller group headed up by Germany, France, and Italy that says, you know what, folks, if you agreed with us that we'll all do this together, then um, this new entity will start supplying bonded money for the countries who agree to fiscal discipline and the market, the capital markets, will buy that debt because then you'll have fiscal and monetary stimulus working together. So now, that's kind of what we're looking for from, from this week. Yeah, but that's not going to happen. Some sense of that. Yeah, so this week is what's the trial balloon, and the Academy will be immediately commenting on it as soon as it's floated as to whether we think it's practical or not. That trial balloon, then they'll go to the politics of banging heads for the next two to four weeks to see if, how many countries are going to be in or going to be out. Right. Are they going to try by for the way, 17 where, countries? Where, where can our, our listeners pick up those comments from the Academy? Uh, follow Ronaldo on Twitter. Okay. Follow me on Twitter. I'll, I'll start tweeting about it as soon as it's floated on the ninth, because it's the most important story in the world right now. And now, this Angela Merkel character we talked about a while ago, who's comes to office with the mindset of an Eastern European, European who saw the benefit of greater political unification of East and West Germany, who ends up the Chancellor of Germany, is the strongest player in Europe by far, very very bright woman. She now says, I came to office, and as a young child, I remember hearing that Europe wanted greater political unity, and that's where this crisis is going to take us. Step by step, we're going to get closer to, in effect, a federated Europe. My belief is that if they cannot get a treaty which 17 of the countries will sign, and they'll take a watering down of that treaty to get that, if they can get it. If they can't get all 17 countries in in the next four to six weeks, they will create a group of countries there will be the majority of them, sure, because once Germany, Italy, and France get together, I think a whole bunch of countries are going to pile on in, including... Let, you know. let me, again, ask one more question, and I think we should go back to our uh, other segments of the show before we get too far down the track on this. Who stands, or what forces stand in opposition to Merkel leading the way? Well, um, a couple things. Number one, there's a theoretical uh, legal issue which says that um, one of the treaty provisions uh, requires that anything covered by an existing European community treaty can only be dealt with through this mechanism of everybody agreeing. So one of the questions is, does that block the possibility for a treaty from some group of people, some group of countries, less than the full 17? As I said, we've already gotten past. No one, no one claims it's going to be the whole 20-something. That's, that's out the window. The 17 we're worried about. Now, 
I believe that argument will not, in the face of reality, because in the pressures of the day we live in, that argument will not end up winning the day in the short term because the crisis is too great. So I don't think that will block it. The second thing that will block it is the one, the most commonly given one is this, Howard. Countries don't like to give up their sovereignty. They don't like to give up the right to have anybody else in Brussels or somewhere else control them. So they're trying to preserve local control. At the same time, they, they, there's an awareness that local control is what killed us in the first place. So they, they realize the problem, but there are all sorts of institutional forces in each of these countries that causes the politicians in those countries to say, wait a minute, we can't surrender control to Brussels. Let me give you an example. An American can understand this. Can you imagine what the United States of America would do? What would the Congress of the United States do if the, if the government said, gee, we're going we're gonna to join a um, worldwide new federated entity and we're going to surrender fiscal authority to that in return for which we're going to have monetary stability on the planet? There's not a snowball's chance in hell that the U.S. Congress would let that happen. So, 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 we, with very individualistic country, the U.S., wouldn't let that happen. However, we did agree back in 1776 and again in the 1780, was it 87, when first the Confederation and then the, the Constitution was adopted, we did agree that we would subordinate the sovereignty of our states to a joint federal union called the United States of America, the United States of America. So we've already done the step that Europe hasn't done yet. The United States of Europe would be far less integrated politically than we are already as a country. So we're asking the Europeans, Angela Merkel's asking the Europeans to do one-tenth of what the United States states did at the time of the American Revolution. And she's correct that that was the original goal of the European community and the original goal of the European Union. And the, and the issuance of the European Euro was in furtherance of that goal, and now she's saying we've got to take the next step because it's time. And I believe she's right. It is time. I believe they need to take that step. And I think that the fear that someone's going to let that the Germans will be running our lives or that Brussels will control us, that's true. That's there. And by the way, you see that in the United States all the time. You see various states say, well, we're not going to let the federal government tell us what to do. Now, in the United States, we have a series of laws. And we have a series of court systems that, that basically cause federal law to be uh, dominant. Well, in certain areas, very limited areas, Angela Merkel saying in fiscal policy, there has to be a dominant federal authority. Other than that, you, could, you know, people in Alabama can live like people in Alabama, people in California can live like people in California, and the two don't have to really get along except they have to both surrender to this joint authority called the United States government on the issues the United States Constitution outlines. As to other things in Europe, similar challenge arises. And what we need to be watching for is, are, will the Europeans be willing to swallow their provincial pride of countryship towards the greater European Union good, in which case the crisis will go away, the volatility of the stock market will end, will be on a fairly good-sized upswing, say 10 to 15% minimum, and we will have restabilized the global financial system. That's what's at stake. No, thank you for that explanation. I think we should probably take a little bit of a break from this, go back to our lightning round before we run out of time. I might mention to our viewers that we do have to end precisely at noon today, so we do need to keep to our schedule. Um, and again, lightning round is always a series of quick insights and comments on the various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. And today our focus was going to be on stocks. Um, Ronaldo, thoughts on that, particularly how all of these things affect these other asset categories? 
Okay, well, first of all, I wouldn't. Today is not a time to be buying stocks anywhere in the world. Today is not a time to be buying bonds anywhere in the world. If you own them, you can make a thoughtful choice to keep them. I'm not saying you got to sell. If you don't own them, keep yourself in cash. We told people in this program six, seven months ago to get into cash. And by the way, if they did that and they got into gold, which we also told them to do, they'd be ahead right now. They wouldn't be going sideways. So I, my attitude Although is – I, I would comment. I mean, I have two, two comments on gold. I know there's been a lot of fluctuation in the price of gold, and I do know that the projections of gold are, again, to increase in value as this – turmoil continues well I think, I think the well the price of gold as you know has gone up in the last uh, 12 months and and it's sitting what about 16 somewhere between 1650 1750 it fluctuates every day i'm going to say it's probably right. over 1700 right. right now um and what i'm saying is if you didn't buy gold you don't have to you can stay in cash although i think the reason for gold now is that um below two thousand dollars an ounce i'm going to say there's a, an insurance value to gold, that if everything really goes to hell in a handbasket, owning gold, and I mean physical gold, not necessarily ETFs at this point, uh, it probably is a protection against the kind of collapse that's conceivable could happen. If the Europeans solve the crisis in the next two, three months, which is going to solve or go boom by then, then you'll have paid a premium. The price of gold will fall back down probably. Not by much, but whatever you paid, you paid to have an insurance policy. So to me, buying gold is like insuring my life. I I hope not to die tomorrow morning, and to the extent that I don't die tomorrow morning, I paid for an insurance policy on my life I didn't really need. But someday I will need it, and so that's why I pay for the insurance. Uh, Same reason you buy insurance for a fire against your house. You hope it never burns down. If it doesn't, great. It was a cost of having your house, but you're glad you had it because if the house had to burn down, and I live in Santa Barbara where lots of houses burn down every year, well, not every year, but quite regularly, then you want to have the insurance. So owning gold is kind of insurance. Now let's talk for a second, though. Wait, just just one more comment on gold. Just as as a reminder, though, uh, for example, today the market is down. It's down about one point three five percent. Gold today is off thirty five dollars, which is a two percent swing. So for those of you who hold gold or are thinking about buying gold, do keep in mind it does have its own volatility, well, sure. and you need yeah. to be aware of that. And, and uh, before you go purchasing gold. Well, it's, of course, it's volatility. But, but so, what's the price of gold? You've got the screen in front of you, Howard. What's the price of gold? It's seventeen oh five. Seventeen oh five. Okay. So, if you bought it at sixteen fifty, you wouldn't mind that it was a seventeen oh five today. Right, but if you bought it at seventeen fifty, you would buy it. Um, well, or be concerned. Again, no, well, maybe not because if if you look at the trend line, and I uh, hope people would do that, go look at the trend line of gold over the last twelve months, and you will realize that gold outperformed the market, which it did because the S and P is negative. Correct. Gold is Correct. up. So, my, so my, my point only... is the daily fluctuations, and I want to focus on what you just said. That's a really good point. It has to do with gold. It has to do with stocks. It has to do with everything. Daily fluctuations are not that relevant to understand what's going on. And notice that ties to what we started the program with, where I said the volatility of the stock market, these giant swings are not a good thing. When the stock market goes up 490 points in a day, that's not a good thing, and particularly when it goes down 193 two days later. That's why I read the quote from Cantor Fitzgerald. Right. So my I only really... point on this that I, that I do want to stress to people who listen to us and sometimes take our advice is to keep in mind that, yes, it, long-term trends may be up or long-term trends may be down, but you do need to be cushioned to the fact that daily volatility can be higher than you might expect if you're purchasing something with the notion it's going to be safe and conservative at all times, at all conditions. And absolutely. Just, and I guess just an awareness. 
I, yeah. I totally agree. And Howard, you know what? I think a better investment right now than gold is Chinese renminbi, the Chinese currency. I think it's a better investment right now than gold. I don't think the U.S. dollar is, even though the U.S. dollar continues to go up. And the reason the U.S. dollar goes up is because people are scared to death and they're figuring, you know, if the whole monetary system collapses, whose currency are they going to use to pay the bills when you want to trade, you know, a truckload of oranges for a cartload of pigs? And the answer is going to be the U.S. dollar. And the reason is because of our military. So when there's a collapse, and and we've talked about this many times in the show, there's a flight towards safety, people call it. And that flight towards safety leads you to the U.S. dollar if you think the whole world might go crazy. And that's probably got some value, but it tends then to depress the price of gold, even though the price of gold, as an inflation hedge alone, let alone a stability hedge, is probably a better long-term play. The dollar certainly is not a good long-term play, because as soon as these crises are over, the dollar will start to drift south. Start going down. Yeah. But going back the to the bo- lightning the round. bottom line in this, all of this is buyer beware. This is buyer all beware all and stuff. And one other, one other bottom line: stay liquid. Gold is highly liquid. You can get in and out of it every day, no question. No matter what happens, you get in and out of gold every day. You know, I'm thinking we might want to shortchange our little discussion on stock and postpone that to another day, just as a concept. We have about ten minutes left. Um, you and mean I do the financial literacy you. part. Yeah, let's let's do stock because it deserves better treatment than we're going to give at the time. We right. Need. Uh, a quick question about what's going on in Japan with the supposed remediation of nuclear-contaminated uh, towns and cities. Um, okay, real quick. A- uh, first of all, as you know, uh, Fukushima continues to go off, meaning that it continues to emit new fission byproducts every day. So the reaction has not stopped yet. So people need to know that, number one. Number two, as recently as two days ago, um, significant amounts of uh, of nuclear um, Toxic nuclear isotopes have been found in baby's milk. Are you aware of that? Yes, we've okay. heard that. We've heard that. So, so what's happening is that the the, the, the genie's out of the bottle. When, when you when you when you throw that much cesium in into the world, when you throw that many isotopes of uh, strontium ninety, when you throw that much highly 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 deadly uh, material, and you can't stop, you can't even stop the the fission from occurring, which it hasn't. All these byproducts of nuclear fission, which continue to have every day, they keep going into the water, the ocean, if they're allowed to do where the water runs there, which they're doing. It goes into the land because, in part, the fission is occurring below where Fukushima was sitting because the, the nuclear material now is below the, the container, so it's now in the, in the ground. And, and, and when, you, when you do that, and it goes into the air. It spreads in random ways. There are parks in Tokyo, as you know, Howard, parks where children play where the levels of radioactivity are far in excess of anything that's allowed for an adult, let alone for a child. Right. The, the contrast to that, and there was an article two or three days ago in the New York Times, which seemed to be that in the face of all of this, the Japanese government is seemingly attempting to scrub, and I don't even know if that's possible, scrub farmland, trees, houses, whatever, in some of the contaminated cities where people have been evacuated since last year, early this year, rather, when the uh, tsunamis first struck. Um, is that even plausible? I mean, no. It, 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 Howard, he, he, this is, this, and we said this at the time, the, the day after Fukushima happened, we said this will go down as a far worse nuclear disaster than Chernobyl, which history has proven that to be true. And in, in Chernobyl, the Russians just walked away and let that place and the Russians, a, no man's land. Say, and the Russians have better nuclear technology than the Japanese, because they deal with it in more, in more different ways. 
And the Russians knew they could never scrub it. Okay? So the Russians said, oh, my God, quarantine the place, and let's keep people out of here. And if they come in, let's let them stay only for a very short period of time. They, 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 they don't let cows graze there and sell the milk somewhere. And remember, Chernobyl, all of the radioactive material is already on the ground. It stopped relatively shortly after it began. Right. In the case of Fukushima, it continues to go up in the air, continues to go in the water. So the Japanese, and, and by the way, they haven't woken up yet. The Japanese government has not yet got the message. And, 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 the, and, and it's quite remarkable that they, they haven't even decided to abandon nuclear power yet, it looks like to me. Now, what they're doing, whether they know it or not, is they are creating a permanent bleeding, oozing wound into the nation of Japan that likely will take hundreds and hundreds of years to fix, if not longer. And what they're creating is a toxic nation. And when the Japanese is it, people is realize... Is effort that, at, at, at scrubbing just a disingenuous effort to paper over a major catastrophe and make people think it's resolved? I mean, what are they, what, what are they trying to do? Well, it, 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 it's like what the Homeland Security Department does with these crazy airport screenings that are, don't make any sense so that people would have the semblance of belief that you were safer even though you're not because the back door to the airports is all wide open still, right? So so what, what, what our... What our policy was to, to, to make people feel safe to fly in airplanes was cover it over, pretend like we're doing things that even though we know we haven't, and while we're doing that, we'll fix the underlying problem, which they've been doing in America. In America, they've actually tightened up all the systems, including the back doors to the airport, so that today it is safer in America than it was 10 years ago. In Japan, they're not doing that. In Japan, because of the power of the nuclear lobby in Japan, and because they're afraid to admit what they've got on their hands, and they're afraid that if they told people what they've got on their hands, that the people of Japan would rise up, and they probably would, by the way, because what the government is doing is condoning massive amounts of, of, of health issues by pretending to deal with a problem that gets worse every day, and they're not even admitting to that. I'm reminded of one of the last few lines of the movie Bridge Over the River Kwai, looking at this destruction that's going on, and I think the term was just simply madness. Madness. It is madness. And, and, and I don't know, I, I, I love the Japanese people, and I love the Japanese nation, and, I, uh, and there's no question they can get off of nuclear. They're not, not stuck with nuclear. If their government doesn't pretty soon wake up to what the heck they've got there and call on every nation on Earth who has nuclear capability, particularly the United States, to come to Fukushima and stop that reaction, literally stop it, don't be afraid that people are going to see behind the curtain that you're, they're going to see your, your your ugly warts. They are, but it doesn't matter. You got and, and, and don't be afraid. I say to the Japanese people, don't be afraid to admit that you're not so technologically sophisticated you can deal with anything. Their fear is, I think, in part, the government, that people will realize that the emperor has no clothes. Hot tip: the emperor has no clothes. And when you got a situation that's nuclear, with half years of half lives in the hundreds, in some cases thousands of years and the entire country is becoming slowly but surely polluted with high-level radioactivity, not low-level, high-level. And it's in the baby's milk, the most vulnerable component of our society, babies. It's time to just swallow it and go, oh, my God, how do we fix this immediately? And right now, there is no projection ever given, because they abandoned the one they did two months ago, as to when they will even stop Fukushima, let alone clean it up. Why are they pretending otherwise? Let me stop you right here. And I'll, we're down to our last few minutes here. 
and I want to sort of bring us back to our original topic and see if you have final comments, thoughts, suggestions of what we can do and what we should be looking at over the next month before we meet again uh, in January. And by yep. the way, our show in January is on the 12th, which is again a Thursday at 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific Standard Time. First of all, happy holidays to everyone. Um, it's been a good year for the Business Academy. It's been a good year for me personally, and I hope it's been a great year for all of our listeners. Uh, and I hope all of our listeners will remember the Academy uh, at the holiday season because we sure could use some contributions to help support this program. At the same time, I'd like to uh, urge people to start following me on Twitter. Uh, I will be doing updates all through the holidays as as new information breaks. I will. And um, including I did one a couple, ten days ago, I think, on this whole thing about the volatility of the markets. And uh, I haven't been doing it as, 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 as vigorously as I will be in the future, but I will be doing it. So that's how you stay in touch. Number two, watch the European thing carefully. If you're in cash, if you're liquid now, stay there. Don't go throwing your money around. Number three, I said earlier in the show, which I'm not going to have time to do at any length, uh, I know I and uh, my dear friend and associate Hazel Henderson and some other people I work with have been looking at ways to create investment vehicles for people that don't rely on putting money in the stock market but, but, but could some way be used to help renovate America, that could be used to green America. And, and we're, we and a lot of other people that we are close to are looking at how to do that and see if we can create alternative ways to give people opportunities to invest and, and move their money along. Last but not least, as I, I really like to focus on this, it's it's going to be a hopefully a better year if what's happened across the Arab Spring, and now it's even in Russia. Look what happened to Putin in Russia. Okay, He basically rigged the election, and then he only won by 60-some percent. He was totally shocked by that. And there's been demonstrations. 99% that he yeah. was used to. Yeah. Right. And the 99% here in the United States is like the 99% everywhere. We are going to collectively create a better civilization with the cooperation of the existing political leadership. That's what Angela thinks. Or we will do it out of the wreckage that these political leaders leave us. Either way, we individually will. And one of the things I'll be tweeting about, which I've started talking to people about, is what can you do with your money in your own life to get a better return than you can get in the markets? For example, we called it victory gardens in World War II in this country. Right now, the best investment you could make would be to buy some gardening tools, some seed, and learn how to grow some vegetables. And by the way, if you live in a colder climate, buy a greenhouse as well. The return on invested capital will be far higher than you can get in the market right now. And when the time comes to reinvest, and hopefully it will, we'll be happy to say to people, great, go ahead and put your money back in the market. It's safe again. It's just uh, not safe yet. On that note, I might add, I just harvested our, our crop of uh, mandarin tangerines and about a dozen bananas, just waiting for them to ripen up now. And if you can get bananas in California, Howard, you're a better gardener than I am. <laughs> We've been working very hard at this for 10 years to get those bananas to grow. And, and anyway, if you live in that, Chicago, you don't have to grow bananas, but you can grow some things that you would like. And believe me, it's a better return on investment. Right. With that note, I want to say goodbye and thank you to all of our listeners. I know, Ronaldo, you've got to go. Thanks very uh, much, Howard. Thanks, everyone. I look forward to seeing you all next year, and have a wonderful holiday and a wonderful new year. And again, thanks for being one of our listeners and a member of the Academy. With that, let me say goodbye and good day. Bye-bye.